what what's wrong with your oh your camera's doing the blurry thing my camera yeah <laughs> it it doesn't my camera doesn't view me as a valid object it's like no that's that's got to be a mistake you need an affirming camera i do yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep and i have been searching welcome to following the fire thanks for joining us on this journey through the wilderness just like israel followed the pillar of fire and smoke we want to take a new look at our beliefs and just follow him. And like Israel, we get it wrong a lot, we get lost a lot, but we're doing our best to, to go where God leads us. I'm Nathan. And I'm Steve. Don't you know it's all I have? Today we're talking to Natalie Drew. Natalie is a devout Christian, a pacifist, and kind of a theology nerd who also happens to be a trans woman. She shares her story with us of struggling with life before beginning her transition, after having a wife and two kids, how her marriage weathered the storm, and she even gives some great advice to other LGBTQ people in the church, as well as for the rest of us in the church. I do want to let you guys know that suicide does come up a few times in this episode. I hope you guys enjoy getting to know Natalie. I had been screaming all these messages I thought you wanted to hear. We're really excited today. We have a special guest, Natalie Drew. And I connected with Natalie on uh, Twitter recently. And Natalie, I wanted to have you on the show because honestly, I was very impressed with your faith and courage being so publicly out and proud of who you are as a trans woman, as well as your connection to continued connection to Christianity. Um, and I'm also guessing that a lot of our listeners don't have much, if any, experience with trans people uh, talking to them or having relationships with them or anything. And it's, 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 it's exciting to me to come across a trans woman who's so deeply in love with Jesus. And so I was wondering if you could kind of just start off by telling us about yourself and sharing your story a bit. Uh, sure. Well, thank you for having me on. Um, like you said, my name's Natalie. So I guess starting more recently, actually on Twitter, it was probably last February of 2020 um, that I came out to the Twitterverse as a transgender woman. It was um, about a month prior in January, on January 6th, um, was my first day at work as Natalie. So it, it was, it was, it's been an interesting time, you know, just, I guess, the totality of my life. I'm 41 years old. Yeah, 41. And, you know, I was I was born in East Texas, which is one of the hotbeds of uh, Fundamental Baptists, uh, the Independent mm. Fundamental Baptist Movement. Uh, Longview Baptist Temple is there, Bob Gray. He's up at Jack Hiles' uh, strain of the IFB world. You know, so I was born uh, in Tyler, Texas, and was just kind of brought up in the IFB world. It was around six years old is when I first remember six years old. That was mid, you know, 1985. We didn't have the terminology um, accessible to us um, to describe what I was feeling inside, but I knew something wasn't right. I knew something wasn't I wasn't like the boys in my class and as young as six years old really yeah 
And, um, and now looking back um, at five years old is when I first got saved. I prayed the sinner's prayer because that's what you do as a good IFB five-year-old. And I got baptized for the first time at five years old. So nobody would bat an eye about me making this public confession in an unseen God um, when I was five years old. But nobody can comprehend or they struggle to comprehend a six-year-old kind of knowing something internally about themselves. But if you know anything about the IFB world, you don't talk about this stuff, especially as a child. Mistreatment of women is a problem in that world. Uh, children is even worse. We, we, are, we are to be seen and not heard. Physical abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, it's all very common. So that's kind of the world I grew up in, this overriding fear that God will smite you, especially the gays. Yeah. And um, everything we hear growing up is fear-based. So I kept quiet and I... My dad was a pilot, and so we moved around a lot. Most of my childhood I spent in, actually in southern Indiana. You know, I remember as a teenager, as 13, 14 years old, going through puberty and all the stuff that was like that internal battle, knowing, you know, I remember crying every night and praying. I would be like, God, I know you can do miracles. I believe you can do miracles. If you just do this one, you know, the classic, I will never ask for anything ever again. Right. Like, just let me wake up a girl. Nobody mm. has to know you because I believe back then God was this all controlling God moving puzzle pieces around at his will. And I was like, God, you can change people's memories. They don't have to remember who I was. Mm. Just let it but every morning. Of course, I would wake up and face with that torment again. But I part of that prayer was also if you can't, if you won't do this, then just kill me. Mm. It was about 13 years old that I started really struggling with suicidal ideation, just wanting to die. I wanted the pain to be over with. I hated, you know, especially in back then in the cult that I grew up in, it was um, a lot of self-loathing, internalized homophobia, internalized transphobia, mm. you know, just that self-hatred, like, you know, and I, I, every time there was an altar call, every time Wednesday chapel, because we went like all good fundamentalist kids, we spent most of our time attending the fundamentalist school. And um, anytime they have you close your eyes, okay, mm -hmm. hey, if, if you want to pray the prayer, raise your hand. Every time, every every time I prayed, I prayed this the quote unquote sinner's prayer because I knew what they were telling me at church. And people like me can't be saved. Therefore, I've got to keep I've got to keep praying this so I'll stop being somebody like me. You know, that's kind of how I spent most of my childhood. Um, it was an absolutely miserable childhood. And I feel bad sometimes saying that because I do love my parents. Absolutely. They eventually got us out of that world. When we moved back down to Texas, uh, we moved back down really so I can get in-state tuition at Texas A&M where I went to school and where I always wanted to go to school. You know, so we moved back down here and moved into the Southern Baptist Church. But that was my junior year of high school. Then I went off to college. And when I went off to college, that was really the last time I regularly attended church um, for probably the next 12 years. Mm. I would flirt with it, kind of go back and 
you know, is either Southern Baptist or non-denominational, which is really just Southern Baptist. And um, <laughs> so uh, I would go back and, but it was always, it was a picture of God that I just didn't believe at my core. I remember arguing with my dad, even as a teenager, you know, about, you know, free will and like, okay, but if God knows everything that's going to happen, how do we have free will? Like none of it made sense to me. And it always kind of came back to, well, his ways are higher. And that's just not how my brain works. And so anytime I went back to church throughout my twenties, it just, I wasn't buying what they were, the version of God that they were selling. Um, mm. But, you know, when I was at a and I really enjoyed college. Um, I, I always I enjoyed the social aspect too much. So I took five and a half years to graduate and <laughs> um, with a very poor GPA. So I really had uh, no options. You know, originally I had wanted to go to law school and I wanted to become a lobbyist. It just like makes me shudder to think of what <laughs> I used to want to be. And, um, you know, I had met my wife, Heather. We met my ju- my next to last yeah junior year of college, probably my fourth year, though. But by then I knew I was going at the time into the Marine Corps. Um, I was going to uh, go to officer candidate school, had already been accepted. So my wife and I, we we got engaged and we're like, OK, hey, we will. um She'll drop out of college when I get married and we'll just do the art, the military thing. Went to Marine Officer Candidate School and uh, blew my knee out. And then from that point on, I mean, I'm sure anybody in the Marines can tell you, um, once you're damaged, you're always damaged. And I reapplied. I did not get accepted the second time. So then I applied for Army OCS. And I remember going to the, uh, you had to appear before a board and they asked me, all right, so I'm going to say Natalie because I will not use my uh, dead name. They're like, oh, hey, Natalie, tell us, explain this semester where you had like a 1.8 GPA. It's like, I, I enjoyed college too much. <laughs> then they'd ask, well, um, are you somebody that learns quickly from your mistakes? Absolutely, sir, I am. I, I make the mistake, I learn, move on. Okay, then explain the next semester uh, <laughs> where my GPA was even lower. So I did not get accepted into Army OCS. Um, so um, uh, the recruiter called me up and asked me if I wanted to come get my transcripts. And I was like, sure, let me get them because you have to pay for them. And so I go in and uh, he's like, well, have you ever thought of enlisting? It's like, of course not. Why would I? I got a college degree, even though it was in a you know, is political science, not much I can do until they open political science factories. And, um, <laughs> you know, and I had a bad GPA at that, but I was like, no, of course I wouldn't want to enlist. They're like, well, if you did hypothetically, what would you want to do? I was like, well, I love the idea of fighting. You know, I was really into that flight to hyper-masculinity. I'm going to prove how much of a man I am, but I'd also like to do intelligence. The recruiter saw me coming and he's like, I, we've got just the job for you. You mm. can enlist to go special forces. So that's what I had enlisted for. Um, but then I got to basic training and fractured a vertebrae in my back. Um, so the special forces dreams went out the window and I just became a regular infantry person. You know, kind of fast forwarding. Army took us all over North Carolina, Georgia, Alaska. And uh, we deployed out of Alaska, uh, 2006 to 2007. 
And, you know, I spent 13 months in Iraq as infantry specialist and then a sergeant came back and uh, my back went out and I was medically retired in 2010 um, after back surgery. Jumping out of airplanes is not really good for your back. So uh, 2010, I get out and I kind of stumble into a job in Houston, Texas. Like when I was in the army, I did get my MBA, but didn't know what I wanted to do with it. And I got a job about an HR generalist position, um, which was totally not my personality. But the job took us to Houston and we bought a house in a small suburb called Cinco Ranch. This is where like my faith, I I start to find Jesus. Um, Mm. We happened to move across the street from uh, Church of Christ. Uh, My wife was born and raised Church of Christ, um, very conservative Church of Christ. But um, there's a church right across the street from our neighborhood. And so we're like, okay, let's go visit just because we know our parents are going to ask. You know, have you <laughs> yeah. visited the church across? Like, yes, we did. It was same as every other church. You know, <laughs> we're good. We go in and I was probably 30 years old at the time. And it's the first time I ever felt love in a church. Mm. It was immediate. It, you know, it was like getting hit by a brick wall. I met people that, you know, just the sincerity in them and the uh, preaching minister there, because as Church of Christ knows, we don't have pastors. Um, right. And so they had preaching minister and the preaching minister there is a man. His name is Aaron. So I always felt kind of an annoyance, like I was an annoyance because as we listened to him and he painted this picture of a God who kind of looked a lot like Jesus and we're like, wow. You know, so my wife and I, we really start. I mean, it was so sudden for us. We're sitting, you know, we would sit in our bed at night, both of us having our Bible in hand and going through and reading stuff. And like, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And as we kind of went back and forth with each other, there were questions would come up and I'd shoot Aaron an email. And um, really what it boiled down to was like what all of my questions boiled down to was, what if Jesus was serious about this <laughs> and not just the whole, it's easy to say, Oh, love your enemies, but what does that actually mean? So we start asking that, you know, cause I was an infantry sergeant when I got out and we have to start asking ourselves like, okay, if we're going to be a follower of Jesus and it sounds pretty like he's pretty much calling us to be nonviolent, we have to actually, you know, follow that path. And, So I would email Aaron, am I crazy for reading it like this? And he's like, absolutely not. At the time, I had no idea Church of Christ has a beautiful pacifist tradition. It wasn't until mid-World War I, World War II period that they kind of shifted away from that. Um, He he sent me some stuff, uh, some readings on the similarities between the Anabaptist movement and the foundation of the Church of Christ, and it just blew me away. Um, David Lipscomb and all these great, great men of God. So we really, I, once I kind of saw that we weren't crazy, you know, for this, we, like if we were, there have been a lot of crazy people in church history. We just don't yeah. think about them very much. Right. So uh, that's about the time we're like, you know what? 
like, I think this is the way to go. I think, um, I do think Jesus was serious. And we kind of, at that point, probably about 2012, 2013 is when we went, well, okay, hey, we are nonviolent. I'm all, I always struggle with the term pacifist because it carries a lot of baggage with it, much like the term anarchist. I am an anarchist because I am a pacifist. I believe mm. that from the political perspective, you know, you can't separate violence and the state. Laws are backed by violence. And, you know, so I'm not actively seeking to overthrow the government, but I'm also not going to sanction their, I'm not going to justify them doing violence as if it's in my name. And so um, it completely changed our worldview on everything. I'm even parenting. We, my wife read this book by L.R. Nose called Jesus, the Gentle Parent. Um, this nonviolent understanding of who Jesus is and how that applies to how we parent. And having an autistic son really gave us a lot of practice in finding creative, non, nonviolent, because we weren't going to be able to spank him, spank it out of him. And yeah. nor would we want to. I think he's brilliant. Yeah, and we think both of our kids are on the spectrum. Uh, just uh, how how it kind of permeated every aspect of our life and worldview, and so um, that's when I started getting a lot more looking for ways to practice nonviolence. And I was able to go over to uh, Palestine with Christian peacemaker teams for two weeks and uh, talk to people on both sides of the conflict over there working towards wow. nonviolent resolution, reconciliation, you know, sitting in a Palestinian village and having this Palestinian farmer quoting Gandhi and MLK and Jesus, because he applies it in his day-to-day -day life um, of living in the situation in the with an occupation living around them. You know, we really started trying to find ways to kind of be like that. We uh, so we were at that church for several years until I guess more of our radical. We kind of go radical sometimes. Um, well, I don't think it's radical, but you know, apparently people do. Where these two, this movement of ours, this kind of this trajectory of ours, kind of butted heads with classic Texas kind of church culture. You know, we. Uh, there's an organization, Raw Tools. They take yeah. weapons. And um, so I organized an event for them down in Houston. We brought them down. They're up in Colorado. I love Mike. Um, yeah, my, my daughter has one of their shirts. <laughs> she oh, loves really? it. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Yeah, they're amazing. And so they came down. You know, we had asked our church about hosting the event. They agreed to host the event. I'm not going to get into the details because I don't want to drag a church you know, I don't want to be critical because we do love the people there. But there was a difference in this issue kind of made us see that there was an irreconcilable difference in yeah. how we viewed it and how they viewed it. They love God dearly. And I don't doubt that. It just we it was time for us to find a new body. You know, no hard feelings on that because we're still friends with. And some of the people at that church, when I came out, have been some of the most vocal supporters and encouragers of me and Heather uh, since I came out. But so we found another Church of Christ, very similar. Uh, the pastor there, or I'm sorry, the preaching minister there used to be the child, the youth minister at our old church. You know, so we, 
we've kind of been on that trajectory. And then the whole time, the stuff going on behind the scenes, like with Heather and I, with, you know, the depression, um, the, the gender dysphoria, it really mm. began to, in my, around 35 years, when I was about 35, that's when it started becoming, manifesting itself in um, much more serious ways. The depression became unbearable. I would come home and just go straight to bed. Um, I'd come home and just curl up in a ball crying. At the time, most people just assumed it was PTSD. That's an acceptable mm. reason to get depression. And I struggled with this. And I eventually did come out to Heather, obviously, and told her what the issue was or what I, you know, I thought the issue was. We we're so far from affirming world. I still didn't know all the terminology, you know, mm. but I told her what I was struggling with. And it, it was hard. Um, early on, it was very hard. Um, it's a lot for a wife to process. Um, yeah. It's... You feel kind of betrayed, you know, and her and I have had this conversation, but she, you know, there's that feeling of you've spent 12, 14, 15 years lying to me, mm. almost like I sold her a false bill of goods. So we really struggled early on. And I I don't refer to it as my transition. Um, this is our transition. And mm. the problem we ran into is like anytime she would give an inch as she worked through all this, I'd want to go sprinting. And, mm. you know, I'd see that light at the end of the tunnel and, you know, it became this vicious cycle, but I never, ever imagined I would socially transition. But the depression kept worsening and worsening. It, it was a touchy time, especially because suicide has touched, I, I say our family, um, our chosen family very deeply. And mm. this is where I probably cry. You know, my uh, friend Ricky from the army, 26 years old with two children, but the army broke him. And um, oh. th then my friend, Will, um, we talked about a lot. He was the only person in the army I'd ever come out to. And he had talked me back from the ledge. He was my go-to when I was kind of in that dark place. Um, he would talk me back from the ledge. And just over two years ago was when, um, you know, he kind of lost that battle. And... Oh. So, so but, you know, I sometimes I wear, well, I wear a lot um, across that raw tools turned it is made out of the barrel of the gun that my friend Will had used. And so, it, but it finally got to the point where I was, I had even told Heather, I was like, Heather, we know where this is going. We know what the decision I will eventually make. And I was like, I don't want to die alone. And if we know it's going to get there, um, let me just take a bottle of pills and y'all sit with me as I just kind of fade away. I, I didn't want to die alone. And I had resigned myself to the fact that I was going to die. Obviously, Heather was not keen to that deal. And um, right around then that she kind of finally got on board with me talking to a doctor about hormones. And um, started talking to the doctor about hormones. And, you know, again, I'm wanting to sprint a thousand miles an hour now. But after talking to the doctor the first time, I find out, you know, it's about two months before you start seeing permanent physical changes. 
And um, so I, I made a deal with Heather and the kids because we told the kids and they struggled really bad early on. But we told the kids that I will um, try it for two months. And after after two months, we'll see um, where I'm at and we'll vote as a family. We, we transition as a family or we don't transition at all. You know, two months later, the depression clouds had opened. My like, I always felt like I was walking around in a fog um, that had lifted. And so, you know, I kind of stayed on that route and the kids slowly but surely started to understand and started to see my improvement. Hmm. But it, they, it was still it wasn't enough. Everybody's gender dysphoria requires a different level of transition. So I was just like, you know, this, it's, it's eating at me still. And so I took this job here at Texas A&M and I told a couple friends at work and Victoria, Jesse, and Emily, and the support that they gave me, it really kind of made me think maybe I could do this here. So on um, October of 2020, I sent out an email uh, to all the management team and because I'm the HR manager, very privileged position right now to be in because what are they going to say to me? I'm the HR manager. <laughs> and, um, but I sent out the email coming out to them and January 6th of 2020, yeah, I think I may have got the previous year wrong. January 6th of 2020 um, was my first day to come to work as Natalie. And I remember thinking 2020 is going to be the greatest year ever. Um, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Get ready for greatness. Sorry, world. Just around the corner. But uh, so that's where I've been for the last uh, year and a half is kind of growing that confidence in who I am, uh, growing deeper in my faith, so much deeper and just kind of excited to see kind of where that goes from here. Wow, that's quite the story. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, it's been an adventure. Tears fill my eyes, you hear my cry. Everything is dark, you are my light. Loneliness so I, I kind of want to start um, because this is the kind of question we don't get to ask very often, which is that uh, one advantage of transitioning or being trans is that you get to choose your own name. So, so yes. uh, why Natalie Grace? So, um, like, I actually knew my middle name first. Grace means like so much to me. I wake up and I go to sleep every night next to evidence of God's grace in my life. My wife has saved my life on so many, and I don't deserve her. You know, I've heard grace described as mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. I don't deserve Heather. And so having that constant reminder of God's grace in my life, but more so, more even more than that, if you follow me on Twitter, you see how open and vocal I am. And it sucks sometimes, but I have to be constantly reminded of showing grace towards others, showing grace towards the people who spew such venom at me, grace towards people who represent what I used to be. Because I had a question, um, what would eight-year-old me say to me? Yeah. I would probably look me in the face and call me a freak and condemn me to hell. 
Um, that's what eight-year-old me would say. But then eight-year-old me would also go to bed at night smiling, knowing that it, it does happen. I do become who I truly believe God created me to be, recognizing the grace of God in my life, recognizing the need to show grace to others. I need that constant reminder. You know, so I knew that that was my middle name. But then it was just a matter of finding a, brand, a first name that kind of sounded good with it. You know, so I kind of like I started at the beginning of the alphabet and just I have a friend who's named Anna Grace. Well, I can't do that. I have a friend named Anna Grace, you know, just starting at the A's and working my way. And I'm like, huh, Natalie Grace. I like that. And that's how I chose Natalie. And uh, it, but really, it was all kind of grounded on uh, that middle name. Yeah, it's a good middle name. It's my daughter's middle name as well. Oh, excellent. Um, and that is one of the coolest things about being a trans person is getting to name yourself. There there are times I, I forget what my name used to be. Mm. But even early, like last summer, I was on furlough and we were handing out meals to our employees who are also out on furlough. And somebody came up and I introduced myself and I even dead named myself. Um, I was like, oh, hi, I'm I'm like, no, I'm Natalie. And um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, uh, that's, that, that is one of the coolest aspects of being a trans woman. I love it. Hmm. That's interesting. So how, how, I'm curious, how did hiding your gender identity for so long, or I mean, I'm not sure if, not sure if hiding is the right term, but how did that affect your faith and how did coming out and beginning to this transition with your family, how did that change things? Um, I think hiding is a good way to put it. Um, it was hiding because um, it's always been there. A lot a lot of people will kind of describe trans people as, like, oh, it's a man who became a woman. No, I've always been a woman. That's who I am. I just stopped trying to pretend what I wasn't. Mm. You know, it's hard to say, especially as a child, because I grew up in an angry world anyways. I would have been angry regardless. But as I hit teen my teenage years and I hit my 20s and my 30s, I started becoming very angry with God. You know, I kind of almost, or Paul resonated with me with that thorn in the flesh. Um, yeah. But I'm not Paul and I don't handle it with the grace that Paul does. And I, I was pissed off. I, I was angry at God. Why would you do this to me? Why would you condemn me? Because I still had a very, uh, I wouldn't say I've ever been a Calvinist. I had a very blueprint version of God. Like, why would this be part? Like, what's the point? So I think that always acted as a wall in my faith. You know, it's hard to really get close to somebody when you're always mad at that person. Yeah. And I always felt that was a, an issue for us. And coming out, it has taken all that away. I, it's, we don't go to church as much as we, you know, I'm trying to get out of the habit of saying should. Um, COVID all obviously messed all everybody's church going habits up. But yeah. um, but my faith has gotten so much deeper regardless. Cause I'm not mad. I'm not bitter. I'm not resentful at God. And I, I don't think God had a problem with where I was in the sense that as long as I was being honest with him, like, yes, God, I resent you for this. Um, I think he wants us. We see it throughout the scriptures. Um, those honest prayers. I saw the naked pastor, David Hayward. He has a cartoon where 
like the the most honest or the most sincere prayer or God's yeah. favorite prayer. And it's the guy just saying like, what the, yeah. you know. WTF <laughs> is what it says. Yeah. Yes. I, that's um, one of my favorite ones too. <laughs> I, I love it because it's so it's spot on. And, um, but now I don't say that, you know, now it's thankfulness. I'm mm. thankful that I am who I am, that I've got this amazing family and uh, it's removed, coming out has removed that block that kept me from really growing deep with uh, Christ. That's an interesting perspective because you know, you also often hear, and I'm sure you've heard a million times that like God created you perfect and why are you changing yourself? It's, you know, but um, I, I liked your perspective of this is how God created me to be. Yeah. You know? um, and my parents struggle uh, with this. I know that they're trying, but they do struggle. I see it in their ref- their hesitancy and they finally took down pictures of my old self. And one of the things that, you know, I remember my mom asking is trying to understand what caused this, you know, Mm. did I do something? Did I take a medicine that, you know, when I was pregnant and I'm just like there, you know, I, I love Greg Boyd. There's been no theologian who's had the impact on my faith like Greg Boyd has and I think about kind of what I gleaned from, um, I think it was in Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Sometimes we don't know why things happen. It could have been, I mean, it could have been something 20 generations ago that goes a different way. Um, the fatality of this progression through the human race resulted in whatever it may be, resulted in me being born in 1979 as a transgender woman um, or girl, baby. <laughs> you know, so I, I don't know, you know, what caused that. And like I would tell my mom, like, that's not the question we need to be asking. Do I think God made me? I think, I think God, I even hesitate to say this is necessarily how God even made me. I just think this is how I was born. And as God weaves his work throughout the course of humanity. Um, this is just how I can, how I am. So I would tell my mom, the question is, the important one isn't, why am I like this? How can God work through me as I am? And yeah. that's been the thing that I have been so excited about um, and where Twitter has been such a blessing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't believe God makes mistakes. I just don't believe I'm me being a trans woman is a mistake. I just think it is. And just like somebody being left-handed isn't a mistake. It's just who they are. So to me, it's as natural to me as somebody being left-handed is to them. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I like I, that way of looking at it. Yeah. I think we like to know what caused this because we want to be in control. Mm-hmm. And then when, you know, uh, there's, problems or there's you know we want to blame someone which is the oldest you know as old as the new testament at least i definitely like the perspective of i mean we could we could figure out what happened 20 generations ago or 10 generations ago or whatever but we don't get anywhere when we have the answer to like okay fine uh what do we do now um and you you're already so you mentioned i am a theologically Illiter- not illiterate, but you know, I would have gotten 
you know, similar uh, GPAs to your two semesters there that you mentioned in, <laughs> if I was in theology school um, and there's, I was trying to remember a word. It was like duality or modalism or something that you mentioned recently about, and it blew my mind. Oh, Genesis mer- one. Uh, yeah. Like a, a mer- it's merism, M-E-R-I-S-M. That's, yes. that's right. So um, thank you. That uh, So one of my questions yes. was, I, you've got a blog where you tell your story and, um, you've, you've continued to add to that. Um, but you mentioned what, what you said about you and your wife, just like pouring into scripture, like it, like you've never seen it before. Just like, wow, what's this? And also theology. And I just kind of want to know like, what, like what surprises were there in scripture and theology for you? Like what, what did you discover diving into all of that? Um, you know, th- and I already mentioned him before, Greg Boyd. Yeah, there there is a uh, work of his that I read, uh, Crucifixion of the Warrior God. It's just too, like, I'm not a theology geek. You know, I don't read a lot of, you know, see people, libraries of theological works. That's not really me, but I love Greg Boyd. And this is a two-volume, 1,400 pages total, arguing the case of, not arguing, making the case of a nonviolent God because, you know, and it's all centered on Jesus. Like, you know, that's why Hebrews 1, 3 is one of the most profound verses for me, you know, talking about how Christ is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of the Father. And so taking that view of Jesus, looking at Jesus, and as uh, Greg Boyd talks about, Christ crucified because it's on the cross where God is most fully revealed to us. Um, that is who God is at his very core. He went to the most extreme lengths to show his love for humanity, which resulted in him allowing humanity to nail him to a cross. And uh, using that as the hermeneutic tool, as uh, kind of Greg Boyd talks about um, to understanding all scripture. You know, so I read back now, I used to, uh, even after I became a pacifist or especially after I became a pacifist, I didn't officially kind of like ignore the Old Testament, but I just didn't know how to process it, how how to properly read it. But now when you read it and you're like, okay, just like we see on the cross where the cross is this hideous death, it is a shameful death in that culture where anybody who walks by, who doesn't know that that's Jesus Christ, anybody who walks by is going to think, oh, that's just your run-of-the-mill murderer or insurrectionist. And they're going to, they're, they're immediately going to look at this and have this negative perception. He's dying the death of thieves and murderers. But as Christians, we know that there's more to it. There's something that beneath that surface. We can't just judge that superficial view of the crucifixion and under like really see what God's doing. It's when you start peeling away the layers and you see the the redemption, uh, the victory over death that He is declaring in that moment, and taking that and applying it to the Old Testament. So where we see those violent depictions of who God is, we know God doesn't command genocide because. Jesus would never command genocide. Jesus would never command infanticide. And I understand I am in a minority with this uh, view of 
Old Testament uh, understanding of God. And and I want to acknowledge I could be wrong. You know, um, mm. we could we're all wrong in some area of theology. But um, you see these horribly grotesque, violent depictions, um, as Greg Boyd refers to them as literary crucifixions. God is willing to God will accommodate and will take on that hideous depiction, that grotesqueness, that appearance of evil even, so he can work beneath the surface and maintain that relationship with us. Because we see it, the Bible, is, and you start, you start reading it like this, um, you start seeing so much. You start seeing that the Bible, even in the Old Testament, moves more and more towards inclusion. You know, it was... Um, in the early days and the first part of the Old Testament, you know, here are all these meticulous rules about sacrifices, what kind of animals to sacrifice, when to sacrifice them. But then we see later in the prophets, and the prophets are like, this is never what he desired. It was the heart behind everything that he's desired. You know, the uh, you see it in 1 Samuel 8, as a Christian anarchist, I love this section. Um, <laughs> you know, the Israelites are like, give us a king like the rest of the world. And it's like, no, we got God. Like, no, God's like, fine. Okay, Samuel, go ahead and give them the king. And Samuel's like, well, they're rejecting me. And he's like, no, you're rege they're rejecting me as their Lord. But God's willing to accommodate that because, you know what, he's going to meet us where we are. And sometimes he'll give us what we want um, or he'll allow us to get what we want. And as we saw with the Israelites and the king, God's like, fine, you can have this, but here's what it's going to cost you. Um, and you're not going to like it. Because then we see Christ reject all earthly power when Satan tempts him with that. And Christ doesn't tell Satan, oh, well, that's not your power to delegate to in the first place. Christ doesn't argue against Satan's claim of ownership of the kingdoms of the world. He just rejects the power. Um, yeah. But we see the scriptures moving more and more towards inclusion. Um, you start to read, you start to really see God's love shine through the genocide, the infanticide, the the just grotesque evil that we see through you know throughout much of the old testament and it becomes very it opened it is such a beautiful thing i i enjoy reading the old testament now because i see so much of god in it and i see a god that looks like jesus christ a god that looks jesus christ hanging on a cross and um to me there's nothing more beautiful than that everything is dark you are my light Loneliness around you are my friend You never leave my side until the end Who am I without you? What could I ever do if you would never love me? I was thinking about what you're talking about as far as Christ and his uh, his sacrificial nature and giving of himself and and um, not pushing for what what he wanted necessarily mm -hmm. like you know, like he prays not my will but yours be done mm -hmm. and I, I just 
kind of bring it back to your your wife. She seems to be, for far, from what I can tell, she seems to be like a perfect image of that from yeah. someone who's just. I mean, I, I admittedly, I have a, I would have a hard time comprehending. Like, if if I was in this situation, mm-hmm. and my wife wanted to transition, I, I'd be like, ah. <laughs> I mean, so t- tell us about your wife and how that how the, all that worked out. Um. So. Real fast, I have a really good friend, one of the first people I came out to um, at my current job. And I remember when I told her, she was like, you know, Natalie, if you ever come to work as yourself, um, I want to follow you around just to cheer you on all day. (laughs) But then I came out and I socially transitioned and she's sitting in my office one day and we're just kind of talking. And, you know, this subject comes up. What would you do if it was your spouse and so I, you know i asked her i said it's kind of like if her husband can't uh said that he was transgender and she was just like she looked at me she's like natalie i'm sorry i couldn't do it hmm. i told heather on countless occasions you're free to like now i would be crushed but I didn't want her to feel obligated to stay with me because um, we were both raised in a world where you don't get divorced. You suffer through it. So I, I kept telling her, I was like, you don't have to stay with stay with me if you don't want to. And nobody would have blamed her. Like nobody at all would have judged her, not even inside the church. And um, but she stayed and uh, she chose to love. And it was it was a lot of work because there were times um, when, especially in a relationship, when you're transitioning in those early times, everything is about the transition. Like Mm. everything is so so you feel it feels I would imagine to Heather or to any spouse going through this, that their trans partner um, is almost being narcissistic. Everything is about us. Every conversation turns to the transition. I, but I knew we struggled with that church guilt about divorce. Yeah. And, but I told her, I was like, look, um, there will be no ill feelings. I, I didn't, I would be crushed um, because she is my best friend. She is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. But I just didn't want to do, her to do that because she, because she was raised in a certain world where you don't get divorced. But she stayed. And we kind of grew. It was fun. Like we got to the point where it became really fun to grow yeah. through this together. And everybody on Twitter who sees my wife, they see this amazingly vocal and supportive wife. And she is just so amazing. But it was still probably four or five months after I transitioned socially. So like May, June of last year. She had never publicly referred to me as her wife. You know, there was still that hangup. And um, I think everything changed when we got attacked. We were attacked by family. Uh, One of her cousins, of course, the the disagreement started between Heather and her cousin about the BLM protests. Uh, George Mm. Floyd, um, that consumed everything. And she comes from a very conservative red family. So I kind of chimed in to, you know, I jump, I can't resist jumping into a good fight. <laughs> and um, we, uh, her cousin sent me automatic, immediately jumped in and started sending me direct messages. 
just these vile, transphobic, self-righteous um, messages. And like I'm sitting right next to Heather at the time. And it's like, I mean, most of our tweeting back and forth at each other, we're sitting two feet apart. <laughs> and um, something clicked for her. And she, she went like full mama bear. And she posted on Facebook, she posted on Instagram and all of the social media. Basically, if you come after my wife, you know, I'm going to fight back. And like, I don't even think she realized at the time that that was the first time she called, publicly referred to me as her wife. And everything changed. Like that was the parting of the skies. Um, and everything has been clear selling after that. Now we've lost, we continue to lose family. We continue to lose friends. Um, mm. But we've replaced them with so many amazing people. Um, I hate I hate when people delineate between Twitter friends and real in real life friends. Um, <laughs> those Twitter friends are some of the closest friends I have. And it, it's been such a blessing. You know, it, it was a struggle early on, but she never, she, I don't think she ever truly considered leaving. We just committed to working through it. And, you know, I don't, I don't fault spouses who can't, even as a trans person, I'm, you know, we've had several people who go through, who are going through the same situation that I was going through or that we were going through. People raised in the church are Christian and they, they come across and they find me on Twitter and, you know, they, they reach out to me and they're like, you know, here's my situation. And I'm like, oh yeah, I was there like three years ago. How can I help you? <clears throat> and now we've, we have one couple who, you know, we video chat with every two or three weeks. They're they're going through the same process we are going through. They're just earlier in their process. And I'm jealous because she's transitioning much younger than I am. And um, transitioning at 40 is going through second puberty in your 40s is not fun. And um, uh, but then we have one who their marriage hasn't uh, survived. Um, mm. And again, it sucks. It breaks your heart. But I also, you know, it's one of those things you just, you know, one thing I've always, I always tell people is you have, you have to count the cost. I went into this knowing that if it was going to cost me my family, I wasn't going to do it. I don't have the courage to do that. A lot of that kind of goes back to the church trauma, that bad teaching on divorce. And it actually may have saved us in those early days, but I just, I, I wasn't willing to go that far. Far, I would have just suffered until I stopped it on my own. Mm. But um, you know, she she's she's the most amazing woman I've ever met, and I certainly couldn't have ever done this without her. She's, you know, we went to Las Vegas a couple of years ago. Strangely, we went to Las Vegas and didn't gamble a single penny, <laughs> but she arranged for us to renew our vows just so I could have that experience as myself. But again, that was really early in the transition. I look back at those pictures. I'm like, okay, I want to do this again. Um, <laughs> let, let's do that over. But um, yeah, Heather, Heather is just, she, she's this fierce advocate at this point. And, um, you know, I'm in awe watching her because she's actually, the cost for her has been higher with her family because uh, we've got 10 nieces and nephews. Uh, combined, 
um, I, I know that I can see two of them. Oh. Um, one group, I think they would have no problem, but we're also, we don't talk very much. Uh, Heather's family does not, they're not talkers, but then two others, um, you know, it's been very, made very clear that some people are just not comfortable with me around the, seeing my nieces and nephews. And, um, but the cost has been higher for her and it really sucks. And I feel guilty about that. I think it's because I'm not blood to them. And so it's easier for them to kind of lash out and hold, not be in fear of losing me. You know, my family, they don't want to lose me because they love me and we're blood and, you know, um, so we just kind of trudge through those awkward moments. Um, but Heather's, Heather's been a rock for me. Uh, you, you kind of mentioned um, anytime in, in the church, one of the best parts about being in a church is that you have people ahead of you who have gone through something, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are bold enough to confess something or to, or you just go through something and you don't have any choice, a sickness or whatever, people are going to find you. Um, yeah. And then you get a, you're like, oh, this is why we have a church maybe. So we can do that. So you, you hinted to, to it some, but I, I really want to hear like what encouragement or advice or, or hope do you have for people who are, they feel this way and they're, they feel like they're choosing between God and something else. And I also want to know what your advice is for the faith community who doesn't think about this every day. So it's kind of a far off them kind of thing. Like what's your advice for, for the rest of us also? Um, so for the people who are struggling in silence right now, I would say um, we are a faith that believes and preaches salvation is by grace. By grace, you have been saved, not through works. I've seen way too many trans people, way too many LGBTQ people leave the faith. And it's not necessarily because church teaching on being LGBTQ. It's because of the way they're treated. Mm. And that's one thing that I've really, I've really, I guess, come to understand. And this is what I would tell trans Christians who are struggling right now. Just remember why you're a Christian. I'm not a Christian because of other Christians. I am a Christian because to me, there's nothing more beautiful, nothing more powerful than Christ crucified. That's where my faith is. I don't care what, as much as I tried to play gatekeeper growing up, in that world, God appoints no gatekeepers. Our doors are open. So I would just remind them that, look, remember where your faith is. Uh, remember, um, our, our church has a very long track record of looking nothing like Jesus Christ. But we also have a very long track record of looking like Jesus Christ. You know, there's always that group that is maintaining and it's not a group isolated down to one denomination because they none of none of them have it when i was over in palestine we we were talking to this one organization and it was a palestinian man um, and an israeli settler an orthodox settler but they were both working towards reconciliation and the the settler had this great analogy where he said the truth is like a shattered mirror and we had this tendency to pick up this shard of glass and say, aha, 
I've got truth in my hand. And it's like, so does your neighbor over here. So the key, the whole point is to try to get all the shards of glass together so we can see that full truth. And I truly believe that when you get all those shards of glass together, when you take a when you grab all those different shards of theology and you discard the stuff that's garbage like Calvinism, um, just joking <laughs> to the Calvinist. Um, but um, when you put all these together, you see what it is, and it's Jesus. So that's why I've been so much more open, you know, drawn to Eastern Orthodoxy, drawn towards all these different um, Christian streams that I thought were all heretical growing up. So I would just remind those Christians who are struggling with this that, and it sounds so cliche, but Jesus is the reason. My That's where our faith is. Um, and for the the cisgender, the cishet type of the church, you know, what we think of, there's a, do, there's a documentary called Disclosure, and it's a phenomenal documentary, and I highly yeah. recommend it. And it talks about the depiction of trans people in Hollywood. And, yeah. you know, they have a bunch of uh, trans um, actors and actresses, Laverne Cox, um, Jamie Clayton, um, all these people. And, but one of the statistics they gave was just mind blown. 80% of Americans know a, uh, a lesbian, gay, or bisexual person. 80% of Americans, but only 20% of Americans know a trans person. So in the context of the documentary, they're saying so much of what people know of trans people comes from Hollywood. And much of what Hollywood has depicted of trans people is vile and disgusting, that we are nothing more than sex workers, um, that we um, growing up, you ask any trans person how how traumatic it was watching Ace Ventura, the crying game, you know, all these scenes, like even the fan on Family Guy. They um, have a reference to crying game. And so what I would tell the, I guess, the mainstream church is get to know and talk to a trans person. That's one thing I have heard so much from people on Twitter, especially like in that weird Christian Twitter community, how Oftentimes, me or some other, you know, there's a growing number of people being open and honest about who they are. We often tend to be the first trans person they know um, yeah. or have really engaged with. And so um, get to know us, listen to our stories, because you'll realize that, you know, we don't make these decisions lightly. Trust me, before I am, um, I'm very vocal about this on Twitter. Um, as an HR manager, um, I've known, I've seen all these articles about employment discrimination amongst trans people. Before I transitioned, I had four professional interviews in my life um, where I presented as a man and uh, presented as a white man going into these jobs. Four professional interviews, I was offered the job three times. Um, the one time I didn't get it was for a job I just wasn't even remotely qualified for. But since then, I've probably had now 16 interviews and zero job offers. Um, Mm. But a lot of that's because there's this just gross misunderstanding. 
all we want to do is live our lives. Mm. So I think really getting to know a person and it helped a lot of people from our old churches have been great and supportive and loving, you know, and these are both churches of Christ, but they also knew us beforehand. They knew the Mm. kind of people we were and they saw the sincerity of our faith and they understand that our faith is no less sincere because I'm a trans woman and they may not understand it, but I think getting to know and listening to a person, there's always this rush to tell a trans person about their experience. If I see one more book about trans people written by white cisgendered men, um, (laughs) I'm going to snap. And it's not that you, you can only contribute to this if you're a trans person, but there's just so much, only 20% have ever know us. So there's so much ignorance, and I don't mean that in an insulting way, but there's so much ignorance about what it means to be a trans person because nobody just chooses this, you know, willy-nilly. Like, it's a hard, like, my life is considerably harder now, day-to-day, than it was before. Before, I could do this, have a conversation with y'all and not worry. This whole time, I have been riddled with like insecurities about my voice um just how i the little things how i present now when i i was um walking across campus and um a guy kind of turned sharply towards me he was just changing course but my heart just kind of like you know that that blood pressure just shot up and i told my wife and she's like yeah been dealing with that my whole life right so um I think if people would just sit and talk with us, um, every person, you know, most non-affirming people can point out a trans person because they've seen the stories in the news, mostly trans athletes. That's the big thing right now. Um, yeah. So they'll point to the ab- the outliers, the aberrations, or some guy who's not even transgender trying to go into the women's restroom, you know, and they'll point to that. But they don't actually sit and talk to us and get to know us because if they did, they would just realize we're just normal people. We just don't want to kill ourselves. And um, the best way to avoid that is to transition. And um, so I just I wish I I wish, tra- uh, you know, cisgender Christians would understand that one. I would love to go speak to a church to help people see you know, put a face to who uh, trans people are, because right now they're just seeing Caitlyn Jenner, who is not a good representative for the trans community. Um, they're seeing the Hollywood depictions, and but they're not seeing people like us. And I'm like the vast majority of trans people, especially later transitioning. I have a family. I've got kids. I don't know how many, I follow so many trans people on social media. They've got small children. Their parents, their spouses were just like everybody else. And to stop treating us like we're exhibits at a zoo. But having that conversation, and not even a conversation, just listening, kind of like y'all have been listening to me ramble, um, and giving platform to trans people of faith. You know, people like Bridget Eileen Rivera, she's not trans, but these LGBTQ voices that have maintained their, their faith is so deep. 
um, Austin Hartke, um, it's important that their voices are given a platform. And um, probably about two months ago, I got really burned out. You know, I was struggling to answer uh, direct messages on Twitter. It's just, you know, there are, there is a time where I, I, mean, I would tell Heather, I just want to go back to the days of like when I had like a hundred followers, you know, it was nice <laughs> and quiet and um, I could, I could get angry at people on Twitter and nobody would notice. But now <laughs> like, crap, I've got to show grace again because, you know, people are looking, but I, I mean, I just, I wish Christians would just listen to us. There's no nefarious agenda here. And we can have differences of theology on this. You know, I know I, I kind of differ from a lot of my LGBTQ Christians, fellow Christians. To me, I'm less concerned with if somebody's affirming or not. You know, one of the first people to reach out to me on Twitter after I came out there was a preacher, I think Presbyterian, I can't remember, but he um, he sends me a message and we had been friends on Twitter for a while and he sends me this message and basically like, you know where I stand on this. You know, I know he's not affirming, but he's like, I love you. I love you as my sister in Christ. And that first interaction after coming out helps saved me from a lot of bitterness towards non-affirming people because I saw that act of uh, kindness and love from him that it really kind of set the tone for kind of how I grew as an open and out trans Christian that um, they don't have to, for me, they don't. Now, my wife will have a different answer on this. Um, <laughs> but to me, I'm like, you know, just treat me with love. You know, are you being kind? Um, are you being patient? Are you trying to provoke me? You know, that's where misgendering is such a big issue for me. Love doesn't provoke. If love doesn't provoke, then why do something that's going to provoke? And all it's going to do is create a, like, you know, and this is where I've really struggled with a lot of, I guess, mainstream Christians is, if you want to sit here and say, I'm going to, you're condemning me to hell, whatever some, and their understanding of hell is always different than mine, but you know, they want that lake of fire. They want to condemn me to that. But if, if you're really worried about me going there, then why are you treating me like crap along the way? Um, shouldn't you trying to kind of draw me away because nothing about the way that they're being is drawing me to that. Yeah. I mean, speaking as a, as a guy who like in high school, I was like super right wing, you know, like hardcore. Um, and over the years, I mean, I, I know that so many Christians have this crazy idea of what a trans person is. And like, there's just so much fear because nobody knows you, (laughs) you know? And even after talking to you just for an hour here, I mean, it's like, I wish people could get to know you and see you and hopefully just listening to to you on this podcast will help. But I mean, you're a great person. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> well I, I don't see how anybody could listen to you talk and not see the, the, the spirit in you 
and to see that that your love for Christ, and and not come away from that thinking hopefully different than they did before. You would never love me. Tears fill my eyes, you hear my cry. And that's really, I get pistol whipped with the same verses. Um, and what I continue to have to, because there, there are times it gets bad, um, especially when I get that Theo bro Twitter kind of targeting me. Um, and they've come after me a couple times, four or five times. And um, it can get very kind of oppressive. Yeah. Uh, it just, it weighs me down. Um, it bothers me. It puts me in a wrong spirit. Um, it put, makes me very angry. And, um, you know, I really wish that people could understand um, the impact of words. When I came out to my parents, um, as I did with most things with my parents, I told them I drank alcohol during the middle of a fight. I, dr- I told them all my greatest sins. Um, I do... <laughs> When we're fighting, when me and my dad are fighting, and um, it's kind of my way to dig. And that's how I came out to them mm. because my dad had shared something on Facebook. Mm. And I, I was, I didn't intend to come out, but you know, when you're sitting in pews next to somebody, you don't know what that person is struggling through. And you go home, you get on Facebook, and you share something that's just trans just unbelievably transphobic or homophobic and that person who is sitting next to you at church sees it the impact the harm that that creates on that person because i saw it all you know and that's what led me to coming out to my parents i'm just i couldn't take it anymore i'm like you can't sit here and share this stuff but and here's why because the people that we all think it's it's like ah it's just joking But people like they don't when they don't realize people like me are sitting right next to them, that people like me are at their dinner table and um, what it does to a person. That's why we see in every statistic shows us that when a especially LGBT youth is in a loving and affirming environment, the suicide rate drops kind of basically normalizes. Trans people don't want to we don't have high suicide rates because we're fundamentally broken when you're rejected by society as a whole when you're relegated to being a, a the butt of jokes your mere existence the recent rush to pass all these laws and you know these people who say oh you know we're doing it to protect women's sports well first of all these are the same people who could not care less about women's sports but they they use this such grotesque language they you know my old boss he's retired now he um our company didn't have a a policy on trans uh women in the or trans access to restroom and so um this was before i came out and we had an associate who came out as trans and trans man well some associates or some of our employees were upset that they were using the men's room and um so 
I kind of got to craft our policy. That's the privilege of being the HR manager. <laughs> and I was still closeted at the time. And my boss came to me and was just like, so you're telling me that if I come in tomorrow and um, say that I'm a woman, I can use the women's restroom? Not knowing that he's saying that to a trans person. <laughs> and right. I, I don't even think he was trying to be intentionally offensive. But the the how things are phrased, it matters. And I I really wish that's one thing I try on Twitter and I fail way too often at that because you know I say that I'm a pacifist, but that's gotta include my words <laughs> and how I communicate. That's hard. Um, and <laughs> yeah, that is really hard. And not using those words as weapons. Um, you know, that's why with our kids we're very um, you know, we let our kids use the English language just as long as they don't use certain words to demean and attack. Right. To us, that's what a cuss word is. Are you using that word to cut down people and demean and degrade them? Then that is a cuss word. We don't use those. But the power of words, and I wish Christian uh, Christians would understand this, and we should more than anybody, yeah. um, because the person we follow. It's, you know, it's kind of along the lines of, sure, you didn't sleep with the woman, but you lusted after her. You know, it's what's in that heart. And we forget that what's in our heart, you know, yeah, we may not go be a gay person, um, but we do that in our hearts all the time. And um, that's really where I think we fall short as a church. And I wish we had gave more platform. Uh, to trans people in the church because right now we're the we're the scary element and yeah. um that that's the frustrating part is constantly having to be on the defense for who you are i think in the church like we've we've heard the that the power of the tongue to destroy we we kind of understand mm -hmm. those words but i i think that we have a blind spot to where we think we're talking about an abstract idea or, or a mm -hmm. far off boogeyman enemy culture sometimes. And we think we're safe in the room. It's almost mm -hmm. the, the problem that happens in locker rooms. I was never yeah. comfortable with the locker room talk, right? But yeah. what happens in a locker room <clears throat> is, you know, there's a bunch of 15 year old boys in this locker room yeah. and that's where we're safe to talk this way. And that's what happens in a locker room, right? And it's yeah. it's not it's not okay to do that, and it's it's not safe. There's people in there that are right that are that you're impacting directly. And in a church, it's it's this locker room where we kind of imagine everyone grew up like us, uh, thinks like us, has the same not not just the same Jesus, but we we kind of forget that our culture comes with us into the church, and then we we talk about these things on a Wednesday night that again we think are like that the enemy oh they're they legalized gay marriage and we, we talk about that for a little bit we don't realize that we're talking with with people sitting next to us who, who we are harming directly mm. with our words and i i think it's even more dangerous because those sometimes those words aren't even spoken with like malicious maliciously it's just kind of does that make sense it's like i'm not even mad yeah. um and so it's so hard to I'm sure I have done this before. I, I don't know to what group or to or to what area that I thought I was safe, 
you know, politically or theologically or whatever, but like, how do we let the love of Christ seep into us so much that even those we're not afraid of those buggy men so much that we're. And, you know, and it's not just LGBT people. I mean, you hear jokes about people who are heavier in weight and, and it's sometimes it's just so easy because there's somebody, you know, for example, Donald Trump, it's easy to try to, you know, depend. And it really, it's not just Trump. It's either side of the aisle. It's easy to jump on and insult um, and demean the other person is why I hate politics. Um, But, you know, I've seen people say on the left who, who make these comments about almost like body shaming comments. And it's like, wait, that's not what we're, yeah, I get it. You don't like him. Like to me, him and his support, you know, yeah, you're among friends. They're a threat to people like me, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Um, well, and, you don't um, have to, yeah, you don't, you don't have to turn that into an insult against yeah. people who are old and overweight. Or yes, what, because yeah. people are hearing those comments. Right. That's and, such um, a good, yeah, it's the, it's the same exact thing. It's like, I've got an enemy. I don't know Donald Trump, but I know that I don't like him or yeah. as a, as a, as a culture, the people I'm with, we don't like him. And so, you know, this happened with George Bush. I remember he's yeah. a, he's a moron or his, you know. Yeah. And, you know, it's like with, it, it's like in any war, um, you drop a bomb on a target. Well, sure, you may make that comment, you know, that body shaming comment towards a political rival, but there is collateral damage outside that targeted area who sees those comments. You know, yeah. they're that for probably t- for 20 plus years, I struggled with an eating disorder. For me specifically, bulimia just had a con- absolute control on me. But and every time I'd hear those comments, you know, the the jokes and and people don't realize who's going through what. That's why you know there's a tweet that went around about not sharing your pain online, and um, you know everybody reacting to that. And I I love the reaction because. We absolutely should be more open and vulnerable. I'm more open and vulnerable on Twitter because so many people have created a space for me to be open and vulnerable. Um, And that's really what the church needs to be. We need to be that space where people can come and be open and vulnerable and say, look, this is who I am. I'm struggling with depression. I'm struggling with anger. I'm struggling with addiction. You know, maybe Maybe I'm fortunate in the sense that I've struggled with addiction because of the back issues from the army. I pain pills nearly took me. Again, Heather saved my life. I've struggled with eating disorders, with depression, with um, anxiety, and all this stuff. And I, I feel like I have to be open and honest about it in order to kind of create that help create the space. I'm not creating anything that kind of make that space bigger to where others can say, Oh, well I struggle too, because that's where I think we start to look more like the church is when we are that broken place or that, that place that's safe for the broken where we're not obsessed with telling them how they're broken, uh, but just loving them for who they are. But we, 
part of that means we have to tame our tongues and that one really sucks. <sighs> yeah. There seems like there's a key that ties a lot of what, what we just talked about together. You, and you write on, on one of your blogs, you're, you're talking about kind of some hate you, you've been getting. And you mentioned the story about the preacher and you said, I'm not demanding you affirm my decision. I'm demanding that you affirm my humanity. Yeah. And, and if as a church, I feel like anytime we have a neighbor or an enemy and we start thinking about these topics or talking about people, we are constantly given this choice to be either humanizing or dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And we want to dehumanize our enemies and and lower them down because it's easier to hate hate them or it's or it's yeah. just easier to make them into a caricature uh, of something. And what you're calling for and what our God does literally is humanize himself and then yeah. and then he gets in trouble for humanizing all the people around him that we call things like, well, that's a sinner. That's a tax, yeah. that's a tax collector. That's a prostitute. You know, that's a Samaritan. Those were all yeah. ways to dehuman, dehumanize them. And so Jesus is so busy, just like, okay, well, I better keep eating with them because uh, to rehumanize. Yeah. You know, maybe they've come out with an official position. Um, but the last time I heard Greg Boyd and his church talk about this subject as it applies to LGBT people. And now everybody's being asked, what's your policy? And <laughs> he talked about how they're really hesitant to have a policy on this simply because it dehumanizes. Instead of saying, you know, hey, you're Natalie, they start to say, well, you fit under this policy. We've got to handle you according to this policy. Um, and it, I, I become words on a paper instead of a human being with flesh and feelings and you know, I, I love how his church is approaching it um, because I also feel confident that I could go to his church and not feel unwelcomed. Um, I believe that they would be welcoming and loving. I've engaged with one of the pastors there for years now on Twitter. Great guy and consider him a friend. And I know that I could go to their church and feel safe. And part of that is because they aren't just viewing me as a policy and so I think, you know, kind of getting back to, we really have to try to remember and to um, affirm that humanity, because if any one group of the church got it all right, then I don't think I'm convinced we wouldn't have all the division that we have in the church. We have all this division and these different theological views because we're all trying to understand it. and. People are going to come to different positions, but I figure God is love. So I'm going to try to lead with that and base <laughs> everything off of that. Um, that, that hold on. That belief. sounds way too simple. It's got to be more complex than that, Natalie. Come on. <laughs> I mean, and it, it is amazing how we, we will take complex verses. People, people will, die on the hill of penal substitution. Um, <laughs> these complex theological um, propositions, um, but then they act like, um, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. If your enemy strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. 
don't resist an evil person. And we take all that and we're like, wait, wait, that's a little bit too complicated for us. To <laughs> yes. So um, we turn the hard things into like, oh, well, this is obvious. And we turn the easy things into these vast complications. But in the process, it's only people that get hurt because since we are talking about theology, um, this is core of who we are. And when we start to turn theology into weapons, and we've seen that we've, it's why we have the great schism. That's why we have the reformation. We, we start to weaponize these things and um, the church becomes weaker when we do it. Yeah. I, I kind of wish our, our policy would just be to love each other. Yeah. <laughs> start I, there. Um, I will, I often get asked because there's another webpage or website that I like to post on. And um, I always get asked when people trying to play the whole gotcha game, like, well, what is love? I'm like, this isn't complicated. Yeah, yeah. You know, what is love is basically a revamped version of who is my neighbor. Well, yeah. yeah. Wait a minute. That's let's say it's exactly the same. Let's draw the box back around. <laughs> Yeah, we we just talked about that, and I, I uh, maybe just last week, but I, I wondered if one of the keys to understanding that verse is this other verse that's always been complicated to me, which is where Jesus says he's t he's looking at these children, and he says you kind of have to be like one of these to enter the kingdom. Yeah, and we're like, oh, and they're very good at theology and you know judgmental. No, they 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 understand what faith and trust means. Yeah. They're they don't ask like where should I draw the box around my love? No. Yeah. They're and they're they're fine with they're like, okay, love can apply both to blankets and people and whatever, like all the way. I'm not I don't yeah. have to draw that in. Yeah. Some of the best teachers I've had in my life have been my children. And you know, yeah. our kids could not be more polar opposites. Um, but they've taught they taught us different things. You know, our son taught us about patience. And I don't say that as a way of saying like, oh, he's really tried our patience, but love is patient. And he's taught us to love better because he, it, we have to be patient in understanding who he is because just as the world struggles to understand who I am, he's going through the same thing, but from a different perspective. And so he's taught us, but you know, he's a lot more blunt, like getting him to go to churches, you know, church is not his favorite place in the world. So this past Sunday, we went to, a, uh, there's a church here in our community and um, he didn't want to go. Like we're, he's at that point. We're like, okay, when we want to not force him, um, we want, but he, you know, I was like, hey, buddy, you know, we're going to go to this church. It's new. We've only been once before. And um, he was like, no, but I'll pray before. Or he was like, I'll pray. I'll pray while you're gone. I'm like, oh, hey, you were talking about praying. Great. Um, <laughs> how his mind works. I think God really digs that. He's going to have that conversation with God because we're all different and we all approach the throne differently looking differently but then you look at my daughter and you know my son is not an i love you type of person it's very common with autistic you know some of them just don't say i love you very much but our daughter for what 
for the very public, um, I guess, uh, affirmations that we may not get from our son, our daughter more than compensates for that. She's constantly telling us. So I, I learned I learned more about love and therefore I learned more about God because of my son, but also because my daughter, they teach us those different aspects of love. You know, love is patient. My son teaches me about that. The love is also kind. And my daughter is the kindest person I know, but we complicate it and think that like, well, who is my neighbor? Like, what is love? Like, you know, but the Bible gives us a clear cut definition. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not brag. Love um, does not act unbecomingly. It doesn't hold on to past wrongs. And if that's too complicated for you, then <laughs> love is going to the cross and allowing yourself to be killed in order to save the people killing you. That's why when people say, oh, what would you do if somebody broke into your house? In reality, I may fall. I may, I may stumble and my human reaction um, to use violence to protect my family. I hope I don't. Um, I hope I don't use violence in that situation because Christ didn't use violence in that situation. But I also know that if I do, because Christ didn't use violence in that situation, I'll be, I mean, I know he's going to forgive me. And this is, it's not like, well, so grace may abound, but I know he will forgive me, but I'm also not going to glorify it. But it kind of goes back to what you said, Christ telling us, look to the kids. Somebody tweeted a few weeks ago about how babies are the most evil creatures on the earth. <laughs> but he was serious, like talking about how selfish they are, like that they would suck a mother dry if they could. Um, and I'm just like, but that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, look to children because they're the most innocent. You know, the way a child looks to the parent, that that unquestioned trust. But yes, it's so simple. Like, look to children. They don't care about theology. You know, they just care about love. Yeah. I feel like we could do like, 10 weeks of theology with Natalie. Just, just. We'll have to have you back. <laughs> yeah. We're, we're hitting all the big subjects. And it's like, we, we have about eight more hours of, of material easily, <laughs> easily. Uh, thank you so much for spending so much time with us, Natalie. I really appreciate it. I know. I loved it. Thank y'all so much. And um, kind of going back. Thank you for letting me share this platform with y'all being able to share my story and uh, talk to y'all. I really do appreciate that. Sure. Hope I hope more people can get to know you and see, like you said, you're not a scary person. <laughs> you're a child of God for sure. Yeah. So if anybody wants to connect with Natalie or get to know a little bit more about her story, we'll put links in the show notes to her Twitter and her website. The Twitter handle is natdrew79. It's N-A-T-D-R-E-W-7-9. Thanks a lot, Natalie, and have a good one. All these messages I thought you wanted to hear, but it only takes a whisper. Hey, thanks for listening to Following the Fire. If you'd like to see show notes for this episode, which includes links to everything we mentioned as well as all the scriptures, head on over to followingthefire.com and just click on this episode. 
There's also contact information on the website. Let us know what you think about the show and if you have any suggestions for future topics. Also, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts if you could. It really helps other folks find the show. And as always, thanks to the fabulous Daniel Wheat for the theme song and the music for the episode. You can find more of his stuff on Apple Music and Spotify. See you later. <laughs>